Hey everybody, welcome back or welcome to The Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show. Well, let me stop you right there. We are switching it up on you guys this week because we are bringing in our first pitcher. And this guy is, he is one of the best big game pitchers of our generation. We are super excited to get to this episode. It's coming at you right now. Tonight, uh, God did something amazing for me. I, uh, I tried to be as tough as I could and do it my way, game one, and I think we all saw how that turned out. Uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do this alone, uh, and I, I prayed as hard as I could. I didn't pray to get a win or to make great pitches. I just prayed for the strength to go out there tonight and compete. Hey, welcome back to the Mound Visit, everyone. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrow, and with me, as always, is our other co-host, Chris News. Today's episode is a special one, especially since pitchers always outnumber catchers. Today, it's been flipped. Two former catchers interviewing our first pitcher on the show. And let's start this off with a bang. What a great opportunity for us here at the Mound Visit to speak with future Hall of Famer, 20-year MLB vet, six-time All-Star, three-time World Series champion, 2001 World Series MVP, He's been the strikeout leader and wins leader. Please let us welcome to our show, our first pitcher to the mound visit, Kurt Schilling. Kurt, What's up, boys? How you doing, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm, I'm rested for sure. <laughs> this is exciting. I mean, like I said, your resume just speaks just volumes. It's amazing to have you on the show here. Uh, I'm super pumped. Um, growing up and watching you just dominate the league time and time and time again. Um, again, thank you. I know it's a catcher's job. We do our best to listen to our pitchers to provide <laughs> some guidance over nine, but please bear with us because we know that you're kind of a veteran with a radio show that you've hosted for, <laughs> for time and, and, and being on ESPN and, and other shows and whatnot. So just bear with us. No, but um, <laughs> generally, generally, Kurt, what we do is we start our guests off with what's called our rapid fire blocking drill. But it's uh well let me say this it's more or less a lightning round of questions just that you don't normally get asked uh to provide so it's just kind of random out right. of the blue um so we're changing the name for this show in particular to the rapid fire pfp drill because we know how much you pictures oh, pfps right i did i honestly i did i loved in spring training i was um that was the first place during every season where i could kind of establish myself on the pitching staff and when i was a veteran um i was the guy who ran from station to station field to field i wanted a pace and an intensity because I've no, I, I learned early in my career watching Maddox and watching other guys that there were probably two or three wins on the table every year where defending your position um, would win or lose you a game. And uh, so I took that stuff deadly seriously. Awesome. Well, okay, I'm going to start us off with our first question for the rapid fire blocking drill. Or excuse me, let me, let me say that again. I'm going to start us off with our first question to the rapid fire PFP drill. What was... For you, Kurt, what was the most enjoyable game you pitched in in your career? 
Game seven of the 2001 World Series, probably. Everything came together. I mean, Clemens, who was such an enormous part of my early career, you had 9-11, us and the Yankees, you had six games before that that were unreal. And, like, it was just, like, I'm standing, I, it was one of the few times in my life where I stood on the mound and I kind of was like, holy shit, this is, this is awesome. Like, there's, there's millions and millions of people watching television right now and we're the only people on. And it was just like, and I remember getting up on the mound to, after I said my pregame prayer and I walked up onto the mound and I looked at Derek and Derek was kind of doing his little kick before he got in the box. And we looked at each other and kind of smirked like, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Well, you guys <laughs> brought baseball back at that time. It was unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, baseball's been at the, at the front of a lot of rejuvenations in this nation's history. And, uh, you know, I, I think at nine, the, the things that happened from Piazza home ring that first night back to all the things that happened, it was amazing to watch and be a part of. Awesome. Very cool. Well, since he brought up the Yankees, I'll, I'll go with the next question. It seems like most of the, on the stage that you were at, the biggest stage when people are watching always seems to be against the Yankees. You always had a tremendous amount of success. And from watching that, it almost looked like you just, you couldn't stand them. So was that a thing? What was it about the Yankees that got you to crank it up? Or did you truly just not like the, the team that you played against? No, you know, I mean, you guys know that, that a lot of that stuff is so overblown and overhyped. I, I got up for the best. And so, I mean, if you look at my career, when I faced Hall of Famers, when I faced the Braves in the 90s, when I faced the Yankees, um, no matter when it was, I was always up for those games because, you know, those are the games in the days when people remembered you when you do things and you know um as a baseball player you 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 realize at some point or after you retire that you have a very unique opportunity to make someone remember you for the rest of their lives i mean i say carlton fisk and generations of people know carlton fisk and the first picture is that image of him you know uh, say nolan ryan and things like that so um I had a, the opportunity to be in a couple of different places at a couple of different times that were some of the greatest baseball games in history. And, you know, that, 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 uh, I just, I lived in the moment. I love that stuff. I, you know, Terry Mulholland, when we were in 90, in 93, my first postseason, we were getting right pitch game one. And then I was pitching game five and, and Mo looks at me and says, you know, he said, the only thing more enjoyable than making 50,000 people stand up and cheer is making 50,000 people sit down and shut up. <laughs> and this was when the Braves were doing their tomahawk chop and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I kept them quiet for nine innings. And I was like, yeah, that's fun. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> well, since we're a catching podcast show, you have your preference. You have Lieberthal, Miller, or Veritech. Who's your pick? Yes. <laughs> I, you know what? I loved each one of them for a different reason. I had, you know, people, a lot of people ask me, you know, who's your favorite catcher? And that, that, well, they were catchers were, I had a very, very close relationship with my catchers um, because, well, I t it's funny because early in Levy's career, I remember him um, <clears throat> on the bench one time. Well, I, I learned it from Dutch. Um, it, Dutch taught me that, that, you know, his most important job was, was, back there and if he you know I, I don't know how hard he believed it but he made me he sold me on it and <laughs> I told Levy one time very early in our relationship I said listen I said don't take this personal but I don't give a shit if you go over four and punch out four times I really don't I don't care you need to be in the moment at behind the plate every mm -hmm. and, and I got that from all my catchers because I involved them very heavily in what I was doing and they were such an enormous 
part of, of my success. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that I think is not taught at a young age for pitchers or catchers is how important umpires are to the game. I mean, I can't get nine guys out and try and fool the umpire. I can't get nine guys out and have an umpire back there who thinks I'm an idiot. So my first line of defense is my catcher. Right. And, and, you know, I had a very, uh, I had my scouting reports on players and all that, but I also had my scouting reports on umpires and I knew who was who and what was what. And, um, you know, I would tell guys, you know, Lee, especially like Levy Erlenmaker, Hey, listen, you know, Harry Wendell stats back there today. Listen, he's, he's not real consistent. He's not, doesn't have a defined strike zone, but you can, you can talk him to the corners. I said, so, you know, I don't want you, it, it, my biggest thing was, I don't want you at your complaining when you're hitting, don't say shit. <laughs> if you're going to talk, talk to him when you're behind him. Cause that was such an enormous part of the game and people don't know that. And I mean, there's a dialogue that happens that is never caught on camera. And that's the cat between the catcher and the umpire. Cause the good right. ones, you never know when they're talking the good ones, because they're always looking at you, you know, they're looking at the mount and I don't want to have to ask the umpire myself. Mm-hmm. I will. I will, you know, I, I would always do the fake thing. Like I would throw a ball that I knew was on the outside corner and it was just, just a perfect pitch. And they would call it a ball and I go, Hey, is that ball out? Just to get it feel. And the good umpires would go, no, no, no. You know, I missed that. Or they'd go, Oh yeah, I was outside. I'd be like, Oh, you bullshit. Okay. <laughs> oh, but, but I relied on those guys so much. And, and, you know, I had very few catchers in my career that, that just, I mean, Benito Santiago, <laughs> was uh, I don't know if he knew what fingers he put down he he just you know he wanted to hit and throw people out and so you know you you adjust and Mm -hmm. it was such a big part of my um my thing in the sense that like everybody always used I had one catcher a year like I I had a couple times where I'd have a backup guy but for the most part I and it wasn't a superstitious thing I was tempo was such a huge part of what I did yeah and, and I didn't want to be out there shaking and shaking and shaking and shaking and time out and talk. And I wanted sign. Yes, let's go. Sometimes without a sign, knowing exactly what we're going to do. And so, um, but that, I, I mean, that's probably one of the most undervalued parts of my, I, I, I studied that job. I, I, because that, I mean, the catcher was in, instrumental to anything I did and, mm-hmm. And it had nothing to do with how they hit. You know, I always wanted them to hit well, but I, I just, I wanted them to be back there and be in the moment. And, you know, Damien was a blast to catch because, um, to throw to, because he was, he was, he was kind of a jack of all trades. He, he kept himself in the game. He knew, he knew that I wanted him invested in the pitch calling. Um, Levy was just, just a physically gifted kid who was learning as, as I got, older uh and his he got older which was fun uh dutch was a teacher um and then tech was probably you know i had some other great rod barajas was really good um good a good thrower chad moeller was good chad wanted to call a good game um you know when i went to arizona i had stanette and mill damien was one of my favorite teammates of all time one of the funniest guys i ever met doug mirabelli was really good in uh in boston um and but tech was kind of the if you wanted to put together a perfect catcher defensively, you would build Jason Veritek. All right. So my next question goes on that a little bit. I was going to ask who was your, when you were in Boston, who was your uh, throwing partner? Uh, I always threw with the right-handed pitcher. 
Um, I playing catch was a very, very instrumental part of, of getting better as a pitcher. And I learned early in my career, you only have so many bullets. And so when, when, when I started, I started working the, the, from my first throw of the day and it was always with the right-handed thrower. And it was always, I always threw on a, on a straight line, a 90 degree line, because that I learned again, early on in my career, watching Maddox throw bullpens and talking to hall of famers that, that, uh, I, I, you, you know, the key to pitching is just being able to replicate your mechanics time after time after time. And, and so I started when I was throwing, I would throw with, um, with the right-handed pitcher and I would, and, and I always threw on the cut of the, the warning track or the foul line, um, someplace where I could identify a straight line because I wanted to, I, I understood the science of ball flight and knew why the ball did what it did when it left my hand. I wanted to understand how to fix that with one pitch. I always felt like, you know, I don't want to figure out the problem and the mistake three hitters into an inning with the bases loaded, nobody out. I want to know that first pitch that I make and it sails wide, right. Then I'm blowing my front side out and I'm overthrowing the ball. So I correct on the next pitch. And I, you know, ultimately that to me, that's the ultimate gift of a, of a great pitching coach is he, he teaches you enough to become your own coach. A mound visit in the big leagues, a lot of times is often way later than, than the mistake should have been fixed. And, and as a young pitcher, obviously I didn't know that, but as I got older, you know, you know, I, I remember, I'll never forget. I spent an entire season, uh, most of 98 or 90. Yeah. 98. No, it was 99. I spent most of the season throwing a cutter. I never thrown a cutter in my life. And I threw a, every fast, I, I was a straight four seam guy and I was throwing a cutter for like three months. I couldn't make the ball go straight. And it was absolutely killing me. No, this had to be earlier than that because Johnny Padres, um, who had retired but was still working, he came in to, to, to watch me. I, I said, Pods, I, I don't know what the hell I've been doing. It's been, you know, 20 starts. And I go down to the bullpen, and on the first throw, he said, what are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? I had always started with my catcher on the right side of the plate when I warm up to get that perfect straight throw. Mm-hmm. I was now starting with my catch on the left side of the plate and I was throwing as if I was on the right side plate. So I was throwing across my body and I was cutting the ball and I did, I didn't notice this for three months and he looks at one pitch and he's like, ah, you know what? Here's, here's what you do. This is, and and I was like, Oh my God. And, and so I totally drifted off the question. I, I I don't even actually remember what was asked, but that was, that was, that was an, a kind of a surreal experience. I was gonna. We're gonna bring up um, Johnny Padres a little bit later, later too, because there's some things. You know, me being, I was drafted with the Phillies. I was with them for four years, so you know, I actually caught you in a yep. extended spring training game in '96. Yeah. Uh, told me you were gonna work on your splitty that day, and I blocked about 20, 25 balls in the dirt. Yep. So yep. I, as a as a first year guy, you see the guys coming in, and you get a chance to catch them, and I was like. Holy crap! I'm catching, I'm catching Kurt Schilling today. This is awesome. So yeah, that was uh, always fun. The other, uh, the other question, right in here, right into that, we had, we had Jason Kendall on um, a couple weeks ago. He had told us that he had success against Maddox later in his career because he actually figured out how he was relaying to his catcher what he wanted him to call in games. So yeah. that that blew us away when we heard it. Did you do anything like that with uh, with any of your guys? So just to get the tempo, keep going. Yeah, let me tell you something. It's hilarious. I um, in uh, 
2001, I literally mouthed 98% of my pitches to my catcher for the entire <laughs> postseason because hitters were never looking at me. Right. And, and I, I would just, you know, if I, I would just mouth a pitch and we would go without a sign and it completely got in their heads. Like, and, and well, it, it was funny because so we beat Cal, uh, uh, St. Louis one nothing in game one of the division series. And I'm doing I've literally told the Damien every single pitch I was going to throw the second, second game I pitched game five. I noticed in the uh, third inning that Mike Matheny was peeking at me. It's always the catchers. Mike Matheny was kind of looking out of the side of his helmet, trying to see what I was saying. So I said to Damien, uh, there was a timeout or something happened and Damien and I were just standing there. I said, Hey, listen, whatever I say, just add two for just for Matheny. <laughs> and it was like three or four pitches where he just looked completely baffled, but it was, I just couldn't believe it. Nobody would pick up on it. It told me that, that so few people were watching video. Right. Like, I mean, I watched it religiously and, and I know there's a lot of shots of, of me from, from the postseason where you can see what I'm saying. And it's like, you know, fastball or split or whatever. And, and hitters just didn't. And that's why I said hitters are just dumb. And, and, you know, being a pitcher and being the smartest guy on the field and the most athletic, you know, you tend to be ahead of the curve a little bit. <laughs> I'm sure now in today's game, you know, with the Astros, you're playing the Astros, they would have had it all already, you know? Wow. I, you know what? I'm telling you, I would have never gotten, I would have gotten my ass kicked in the postseason if they had done because I was a two pitch pitcher mm -hmm. one of my pitches was a strike which was my <laughs> fastball and that was four or five or six pitches for me but my other pitch was a split that was I never in my career tried to throw my split for a strike so if they knew they would have killed me yeah. and that you know that's why I think you know that was that was on another level I was uh I was fixing the game in a way well, I know we're going to talk a lot about that too. I think I would just just to hear a little bit more about your opinion on it. But uh, my next question for you, Kurt, is: What are you not a fan of in today's game? Um, you know, uh, not much. There's so much talent in the game today. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I'm not a fan of the emphasis on throwing instead of pitching. Yeah. I mean, it, it literally. I mean, so the. the Tony Fossis doesn't exist anymore. You know, Mike Myers doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Javi Lopez doesn't exist anymore. Um, you've got six to seven arms in the pen that all throw in the mid nineties. Uh, and, and so few of them pitch, but the fact of the matter is these clubs are stockpiling arms that, and, and I don't think a lot of guys see it where, well, you know, if this guy blows out because they're, I learned from Theo Epstein, you can build a brand new bullpen every season. Doesn't matter. Both relievers are the most unpredictable players in the game, except for the Riveras and the Hoffmans. But everybody knows when you have one of those. The other five or six guys, I'm, who was it? Um, uh, Fernando Rodney a couple years back wins the Rolades and throws and has like a sub one ERA. And the next year he has a five. Same guy, same stuff. Right. You know, those last three outs are harder. I don't care what anybody says. They're different. And um, it's just that, that emphasis kind of bothers me a little bit um from a pitching standpoint i yeah. you know but there is so much talent in the game today so many like you know it's frustrating to see a guy like noah Syndergaard get to the big leagues throwing the way he throws mm -hmm. some you know and it's it's the same thing as when i played and when you guys played 
coaches in the minor leagues are terrified to, to, to change and work with prospects because they don't want to lose the job. And, and, um, that, that, I think that ends up costing them. That ends up making them, they suffer. The kids suffer at the big league level. Um, and I, I don't like that. I, I also think probably my biggest pet peeve now is first of all, I hate the opener. I think that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> But this this belief that pitchers are on this pitch count that and, and I get it you know the statistics I'm a sabermetrics guy in in many ways I believe and I understand and I know I can't imagine how many more wins I would have had if I would have come out when I should have come out in games when I was younger because you know we didn't have a bullpen and mm-hmm. Tito was yeah it was funny because I was pitching a game in New York one time. And I'm going in the ninth. I was, and I'm the only pitcher to do this since the second world war, by the way, I go into the ninth with a four nothing lead and I blow the lead all by myself and lose the game in the ninth (laughs) inning. And about halfway through the inning, Tito comes out to me (laughs) and as he's coming out, I look in the bullpen and like Eric Plantenberg's warming up and, and, and Tito looks at me and he goes, how you feel? I said, I don't know, but you're not effing bringing Eric Plantenberg into this game. So <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm not. I just came out here to kind of give you a breath. But, you know, that, 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 it, it's that pitch count thing, I think, is, is well, here, here's the reason why. I don't ever want my pitcher to do something for the first time in the big leagues. Yeah. Yeah, pitching like in the that. seventh inning with runners in scoring position, right? Yeah. Uh, pitching in the eighth or ninth inning. I mean, though, my God, those were – Johnny Padres taught me he, it, the most I, – and I always ask pitchers this, young pitchers. What's the, and I would ask you too, what do you think the most important statistic at the end of the season is for a pitcher? That's a good oh, question. Got me on the spot. Yeah. I would say the most important statistic would probably be, I would say, strikes and limited your, uh, your guys on base, limited your walks. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably have to go with that. The most important stat for starting pitchers is innings pitched. I was just <laughs> because if you have 235 innings, all the other stuff comes along with it. You can't be on the mound if you suck. You can't be on the mound if you're not getting outs. You make 35 starts. Those nine innings are mine. And and the day I realized early in my career, they're not paying me to take the ball every fifth day. They're paying me to win. Mm-hmm. That's a very different mindset. And so. You know, I took ownership of that nine innings and, and that was always, I loved that was my favorite time in, in my career, whenever it was, was being on the mound in the ninth inning of a ball game, because after the game, I could stand in the clubhouse and, and look around and know that I did my job. And, you know, you leave in the sixth inning now, which a lot of guys do, you leave a third of the game. You can't be upset about winning and losing. That doesn't, that doesn't work that way. And so they have more of a frame of mind in today's game of saying, look, I just got to get, I just got to get to the sixth or seventh. And well, that, that, but that's over. how they're taught, right? Yeah. That's how they're taught. So they don't know any different. I mean, I had, I had 280 inning minor league seasons before I got to the big leagues. That, that That's absurd. That's unheard of now. Yeah. But I, I threw eight, nine, 10 complete games uh, in a minor league season. And, and, you know, thankfully I came up with the old school Red Sox. They had no, Pitching coaches in the minor leagues, none. They had a ro- they had a roving golf instructor, um, who, and he was a great guy. But like his answer to every problem I ever had was to break my hands. So, um, but so I had to teach myself. I literally, 
So in double A in 88, I was on in the bullpen out of spring training and a month in, I got a start and I'm warming up with Todd Pratt. And I, I just grabbed a fork ball. I was like, I gotta have, I don't have an off speed pitch. And I grabbed a fork ball. I was like, I'm gonna throw this tonight. And I punt through a complete game and punched out 14 guys. And, I, and he was like, Holy shit, dude. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. This is like work. Like, I, I mean, I literally taught myself, but, but it used to be, and you can see where the difference is. It used to be survival of the fittest, right? The, 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 the teams would have, you know, six or seven minor league teams and the guys who figured it out would be able to survive and move their way up and get to the big leagues. Now it's, it's, let's move them along and, and, you know, Oh, he's at 120 innings. That's, we're going to shut him down for the season and, and, and all. And I, there is some science to the fact that guys, you can't increase a guy's innings by that much. Right. I, I believe in a lot of that. There are freaks of nature and they're always going to be, but why don't you ramp up those innings in the minor leagues mm-hmm. before you get to the big leagues? Why, why does a guy get, because, and it's a lot of it is the money, right? I mean, you give a guy $8 million to sign, you want him in the big leagues as soon as you can get him in the big leagues, even if it means cutting short his development. And I think that's what pitching has suffered mightily because of that. You see so many, you see so many players, both at position players and, and the pitchers who are rushed through the system, who do get up there. And I think from, <clears throat> from an organizational standpoint, their job is to say, hey, we had so-and-so get to the big leagues. Right. And that's how many of those guys you end up seeing get put on waivers yeah. after a year or two or well, it's, away I somewhere mean, else? Look, everybody, everybody is having Tommy John. Yeah. Yep. Everybody. And you go down to the high school level and it's happening. But I, <clears throat> there's a reason why guys in the 60s through 300 innings, guys in the 70s through 285, 300 innings, and – you know, 15, I threw 15 complete games in 1998 and that's more complete games than some of the guys active right now will have in their careers. And, and it's, it's, <clears throat> you know, it, it, and I, I think coming that mindset comes along with the mentality, a very different pitching mentality, but those guys back in the sixties and seventies, they weren't better men or in better shape. They threw more, mm-hmm. they threw more as kids. They threw more as minor leaguers. They threw more as, you know, and you could go to a four man rotation right now if you started doing it in the minor leagues, you know, because you get your body gets used to it. And here's the thing, you know, the, 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 the separator for everybody is your, your collagen. Everybody's body is made up of collagen that holds your muscle. I mean, your, everybody's collagen is different. That's why some guys are always hurt and some guys are never hurt. And you, you know, you, you find that out. I would argue, I'd like my guy to have Tommy John before he gets to the big leagues, you know? So but it's it's a that mentality probably is the thing I dislike most that that whole um, pitch count mentality. So real quick to follow up on that, so that you know they're switching the rules over whenever the season t- does take place. Are you okay with, then with the three batter minimum? No. Stupid. I mean, they're they're trying to artificially shorten games in a sense, in a way there's not going to be a meaningful change in game times mm-hmm. until you force the batter to stay in the box. Nothing's going to change. I know they're hurrying it now and some umpires enforce it and some don't, but the pitch clock to me is a kind of a joke. If, if the pitch <laughs> clock matters to you, you're a suck. You suck. Like, and you know that guys, you, you don't want to be sitting behind the plate and have a guy throw a two nothing shutout and win and have it take four and a half hours. Correct. Tempo, right. getting the ball right. and throwing it. And you'll ne- there are very few guys, if any, that I know of in the Hall of Fame that were slow workers. Maddox got the ball and threw it. 
You know, all the Clemens got the ball and threw it. Pedro got the ball. And you get the – because that's part of my weapon. Part of my weapon, part of my arsenal is that tempo where I get you in the box maybe when you don't want to be. And, and I'm – you know, I'm ready. You get in that box and I'm already getting my sign. I'm, I'm winding up before you've had a chance to bat waggle and do all the other crap. And, and that – you know, and haven't, and I know that was a weapon because of how many times guys stepped out and called timeout. Yeah. And they get back in. Nothing's going to change when you get back in, Bob. I'm coming. <laughs> we got, I got one more, one more question on a lighter, lighter note, and then we'll dive into everything in a little bit more detail. But so, <clears throat> movie Bull Durham, Crash Davis tells the players, hey, we're going to have, a, I'll get you guys a rain out. They sneak into uh, the field. You know, play around in there, and they, you know, they get them a rain out. Was there any, any stadium that you guys might have snuck in late at night and played around in? There might have been. Um, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on that stuff, so I probably just, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We we I played in the New York Penn League for cripes sakes. I mean, and I played in the South Atlantic League. So, I mean, when you're in Macon, Georgia, and it's 174,000 degrees at 6 p.m. for the game, you know, a day off doesn't hurt. I don't know if you guys might have done anything. I've always, you know, some of my some of my friends from the Phillies and that, you know, there there might have been some rumors floating around about a paintball game and, and some oh, stadium yeah. during a hurricane or oh, yeah. things like that. <laughs> that was one of the greatest. So, so in uh, 1998, we were at the – Thank you, at, Gary Bennett, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. We were in – we were in um, – Florida for the end of the season, we had a four game series and it was there, there was a hurricane coming. And so they canceled Friday's game and a bunch of us said, you know, okay, there's a hurricane coming. I'm not staying at the hotel. Like I'm going to the stadium. The stadium isn't going to blow away. <laughs> so we were, we were talking about during the day and I was like thinking of something. I was kind of that guy. I was the football pool guy. I was the guy that did all the, the dumb stuff. And I was like, okay, I went out and I bought like $2,000 with the paintball gear. And I bought like, like, like 10 or 50, I bought like 20 camo, full camo outfits, masks, 20 guns, like 2 million paintballs. And we bought, I brought a bunch of steaks and we bought, we, we took a grill to the bar, to the yard and we get there and the clubhouse guy is, is shitting himself. He's like, you know, I don't, I, no one, I didn't see anything. I didn't, you know, and I'm like, All right, whatever, dude. I'm like, it's going to be a hurricane. No one's going to even know we were here. So we it's i mean this is scott Rowland, his second year in the big leagues and uh paul bird uh gary i mean it was all of us um and they so we go out in at night and they had the tarp on the field and they had like eight or nine tractors sitting on the tarp to keep the tarp from blowing away on the field and it was it was pitch black man and we played paintball from probably 10 o'clock at night till like five o'clock in the morning and we 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 paint like we played we had a game where we we all hid behind the tractors and one person had to run and grab a jersey off the pitcher's mound in the middle of the field and everybody got to just <laughs> help them um we played you know uh team games and then we had a game where uh, somebody hit a hundred dollars in a sock in the stadium and you had to find it and the funny thing well it's funny now because it didn't happen but if you remember old joe robbie stadium the upper deck was always closed well there were no railings on the upper deck scott Rowland and paul bird like caught each other and shocked each other and scott Rowland almost rolled off the top deck of joe robbie stadium 
Oh God! Like literally caught himself. Oh Jesus! That wouldn't have been good. No, no, and then and, and then I'm pitching. So so I'm gonna make my last start of the year. I have 293 strikeouts going into my last start. I need seven more for 300. And I'm pitching the the one of the Saturday games. I'm coming down the. Remember the. I don't know if you guys are ever in Joe Robbie, but to get to the bullpens in Joe Robbie, you had to go through this little room that had stairs down and then stairs up, and then it made right in the bullpen. I tripped going down the stairs, and I thought I broke my ankle. I literally thought I, – I mean, it was sw- – I was like, oh, my God. I'm going to miss my last start because of paintball. This is – you know. <laughs> so we played all night. We had fun, and, and uh, we ended up – nothing happened. The hurricane didn't hit. Nothing. It didn't even rain. So now – the stadium looks like the Partridge family bus. It's pink and yellow and <laughs> everywhere. And I'll never forget. We left. So we went back to the hotel and uh, we left Paul Bird sleeping inside the clubhouse. In He was sleeping in the roof of the clubhouse. He was the only guy there. But uh, we get to the ballpark the next day. I'll never forget this. Kevin Sefcik comes walking in. I walk in and Kevin, well, Kevin's Kevin. And he walks up to me, he goes, dude, you guys are in so much trouble. And I'm like, first off, you guys, dude, you were there. What do you mean you guys? First, and he's like, yeah, but I didn't play. I said, no, 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 no. No, no, that doesn't work that way. And secondly. Guilty by association. Yep. I said, and secondly, if anybody says anything to you, tell them that it was me that did it. Because I was like, you know, I was on that team. I was one of Scotty and I, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get released and I could handle a fine. So, but it was, I, I did those, I did that in AAA on a rehab. When we were, uh, and I was with Houston too, we had an off day and I took the whole team out to paintball and it was the greatest experience ever. Cause it started off with, um, my pitching coach, Brent Strom. I know Strom. Yeah. Yep. And our third baseman at the time, um, Gary Cooper, Gary Cooper with Houston. We're standing literally 50 yards apart and there's 20 on each side and Gary Cooper fires his gun and hits Brent Strom right in the ball sack. Oh, and like th- that was just the, the impetus for the day. It was like, this is going to be the greatest off day ever. So, but I always did stuff like that. When I went down to rehab, I always bought the dinner for the team just because I understood the things that made being in the big league so special. And you kind of want, I always wanted to give them a taste of that and, and, you know, maybe help them think, Oh, this is, this would be cool. I remember we had we had Rex Hudler come down a couple times. In 90, I think it was '97. We were down in Clearwater, and so he was down there, and just my lord, that was like the funnest two weeks. Like and it ever. wasn't an act; yeah. that was all real. That he guy was, was a, just, oh my god, everything. never had a bad day in his life. Never, always smiling, and just made you. He he made you could have the word. You could be in an 0 for 50 slump, and he'd sit next to you, and it you, it didn't even make a difference. It was Hudman was awesome, man. Yeah, he was amazing, and he owned Randy Johnson. <laughs> I have one last question. I know you said that prior that when it came down to the the Yankees and and whatnot, and it was all competition based. But was there one Yankee that you just could not stand? Um, yeah, there were more than one. Okay. Um, and I say this as an opponent. I didn't know these guys. So mm-hmm. when I say I couldn't stand them, I couldn't st- – I, like Bernie Williams and Jorge Posada. And, and the third one is Paul O'Neill, but I know Paul and I love Paul to death. Those three guys, none of them ever took a called strike in their entire career. <laughs> Never. 
every, and it was so I was a guy who worked on the corners and like yeah. every strike I ever got, they were like, and I was like, dude, if you complain every single time, like, yep. and so part of my, my scouting report on, on, but those guys, I couldn't stand facing those guys just because, you know, and, but, it, but again, it had, I had nothing to do with the personalities. And, you know, when Alex was in New York, I think there people didn't like him and for all the reasons, but, you know, I kind of, I mended that fence a, a while back. So no, I, 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 I always understood the Yankees were, were who you had to go through to be somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 I cherish those, those matchups. I loved, I loved pitching in Yankee stadium, loved it. And they were the, they were the filthiest, meanest fans on the planet, but they were good. They were great fans. They, they knew how they to rag. Yeah. Oh, but they knew how to say things that you would, that you would remember after you walked away. You'd be like, wow, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did the research. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They would talk about the outing. You gave up seven earned runs three starts ago in Kansas city. Like you can't even get the Royals out. You suck. You'd be like, wow. Okay. I got no comeback. Oh man. Wow. So like, like I said, Kurt, I was, I was talking with, uh, with Dave Hollins last night and just asked him, you know, what he, what he remembered about you. And, you know, for the fact that you came up as a reliever, you got your, your chance to, um, to start, um, be a starter with the Phillies. and he said, you know, obviously the impact that Johnny Padres had on you when you get to work with him. But one of the things that he said is you were, you were a tremendous student. So when, when we would sit there and say, you know, going over your reports, you know, the, the great ones are the guys that will remember, hey, you know, last year I was in a 2-1 count with this guy and I threw him this and he, he took it. So he's probably looking for this. Like, what was your preparation like? You know, like – you would say, you know, you, you like to have fun, uh, you know, be a great teammate in that. But when it was game day, you kind of flipped the switch on and you were yeah. like just completely locked in. Well, it goes what, back was your, to, what was your routine like? It goes back to what I said earlier. I, I understood very early in my career, I wasn't getting paid to pitch. I was getting paid to win. And, and when you're getting paid millions of dollars, you know, you have an obligation. And I could never understand the rigors of playing every day. So as a pitcher, I could never be that the leader, but I could be a voice that mattered if, if I made my day matter. And so I made my day different than everybody else's day. And in the sense that, you know, this is wind day. And if, if you don't make a play behind me, it needs to be because you weren't in the right place. And I, I screwed up or you, because I managed my defense from the 1995 on, I, I managed my defense. I put my players where I wanted them. I told them where to play. Uh, you know, I work with my catcher. I, I would tell you, I probably, I think, I think I spent more time in the video room than anybody that ever played the game. Uh, and, and I, I say that I'm, I'm very proud of that because that was, you know, seven o'clock game. I would show up on the days I didn't pitch at 12, 15, 12, 30, um, do whatever I had to do, uh, till one 2 o'clock. And then I would be in the video room from two o'clock till five 30 or six, um, watching. And, and, and I realized that it became, John Vanderwall one time told me in San Francisco that he goes, you don't understand, man. There are guys who they know they're out before they go to the plate because they know you've seen them hit more times than they've seen them hit themselves. And I, you know, and, and I, that was, that was a weapon for me, but, but I did, I, I, you know, I pitched against the Yankees three times in nine days, uh, you know, one, and I knew every pitch I wanted to throw in every game in every situation. Um, I, 
I, and this started day one of spring training on my first. So, so I left for the ballpark five hours before the first pitch on the day I, I, I started no matter what the game time. So, and then I got there and I did my routine to the minute every day, the same. So game one, my start in spring training when I'm throwing two innings was the exact same day as game seven of the 2001 world series. So there was no, I was never late to the park. I was never hurrying to get stuff done. I was never surprised by a pinch hitter in the eighth inning. Like I'd been preparing when I prepared in the national league, especially in the interleague, you know, if I'm pitching Monday and I come out of the game Monday, I always tell people, they always ask, you know, what was the, what was the greatest, the greatest time for me was that 30 minutes after I pitched and we won in the clubhouse, because about 35 minutes after that, I start thinking about, okay, I got the Padres on Saturday. Um, is Santiago going to catch? It's a day game after a night game. So he probably won't. Who's the backup catcher who's pitching. And, and are they a guy that usually goes deep in the game? If they aren't, who are the two or three hitters I might see before the sixth or seventh or eighth inning. And, and so, you know, that led into things like, um, if you look at my numbers against Biggio and Bagwell, I, we played them in spring training and I used to use every spring training as my setup stage for the season. I Bagwell hit a couple home runs off me in spring training. And I would tell you, I threw him pitches that I wanted him to home run because hitters don't stop looking for a pitch if they get it. And he got it in spring training and spent the whole year looking for it and never got it during the season. I recognize it. And, and that, you know, that comes with fastball command and all the things like that. But one of the things I tell young pitchers, you know, I used to do this and, and say, okay, hey, listen, I want you to write down on paper for me the things that go through your head before, you're, before you nod yes to throw a pitch. And they would write down a list of six or seven things. And I would show them mine, and mine was 57 items. Holy shit. <laughs> but it was all wrapped up into a three-second thought process. Who's the hitter? What's the score? Who's on deck? Who's on base? What inning is it? You know, what did I do with them last time? What did I, what did I, you know, and so I, I kept notes and my notes were, I was, like I said, I was very sabermetric. I didn't care what, how many home runs or RBIs that those numbers were absolutely meaningless to me. I wanted to know your first pitch swing percentage. I wanted to know the counts that you sucked on and the counts that you thrived on. I wanted to know what your swing percentage did as the game went on in the second or third or fourth at bat against the same guy is your swing percentage on the first pitch three times as high or is it just the same, you know? And so, and then it would be, uh, you know, what inning is, what am I looking for? If this is my first at bat, how do I want to set you up for your next three? Cause I always looked at facing the guy three or four times because I was thinking ah, I'm going to be in the game for nine innings, whatever. Um, and you know, I would, and then I would have to factor in, Who's my umpire? What side of the plate does he prefer? Because I always looked at it like this. If I set up the throw fastball and the freeze a guy 2-2 with an umpire behind the plate who doesn't call the inside corner, that's on me. Right? So, so I would work. I, the umpire is the umpire. And as long as you were consistent, I, didn't, I wanted you to be a big strike zone. But if you weren't, I, I could adjust. You know, the, 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 the guys like Frank Pulley and, and Eric Gregg and, and guys who were just waiting to call a strike, they didn't give me an advantage because they called strikes for everybody. You know, I wanted the guys who, and I always said, if it's ball one, it better be ball four. And if it's strike one, it better be strike three. And then you had the umpires, you know, Angel Marquez and last year sometimes who would, their strike zone would be 21 to 22 inches. And at two strikes, it was 15. 
you know, those are the guys I had problems with because, you know, then I had to go, I, you know, I, I didn't operate in the middle of play. So I was either fastball up or split in the dirt or, you know, something like that. But those, I, again, I had a million thoughts and they all tied together. I could compress them into three or four. Okay. And, and then you have to, Pedro Martinez was one of the best I ever saw. He was the best I ever saw at reacting to events. He could see a hitter move. He could see a hitter adjust. He could tell Greg Maddox said one time, uh, the hardest thing to dis- to decipher is when a hitter hits a ball the other way, foul ball, is he late on it or is he trying to hit it that way? You know, and those are the things that you tried to watch. And Pedro could feel his way through a game. And it was just, it was magic. I was the other way. I, ha- I was a student. I don't ever remember, honest to God, when I think back on my career, I don't ever remember seeing a hitter in the batter's box. Because the hitter didn't matter to me. The only thing that mattered to me was your glove. You know, that's why in spring training, when I threw my first bullpens, I threw them with my catcher because I would say there will never be a pitch that I throw that you will sit in the middle of plate for. Never. Uh, now, that's fastball. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, when you sit on the outside corner, I want you to crotch to split the corner. Inside corner, same way. <clears throat> I said, don't try and steal pitches for me. You know, if you can get them, great. But that tends to piss off umpires more than, 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 than you, you like. But it was always um, – there's command and control, right? Command is the ability to throw strikes. Everybody – or control. Control is the ability to throw strikes. For the most part, everybody in the big leagues has control. Command is the ability to manipulate the ball inside the strike zone. And once I started to develop command, I realized, with the exception of very few guys like a Tony Gwynn or a Barry Bonds, everybody has holes. And so if you – I always looked at strikeouts to walks, percentage of at bats. If you strike out 100 times, I'm not worried about you because you have holes and I have a four seam fastball that I can throw 98 miles an hour to those holes. If you don't strike, if you walk more than you strike out, you know, if your guy puts a bat on the ball, like a Jason Kendall, you know what? You're a little bit more of a problem for me. So, so what I'm going to do, I mean, it got to the point where Tony Gwynn was so good. He became easy to pitch to. I said, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to move my shortstop to the left. We're going to move my second baseman beyond second base to the left. We're going to move center field to, to left center field, and I'm going to bring my left fielder in about 15 steps. I'm going to throw fastballs away and hope he lines it to my left fielder. Yeah. yeah. And, and so in that sense, it'd be, you know, and, and I use my second baseman all the time for the most part. My second baseman would manage my defense. You know, I'd tell Dustin, hey, listen, you know, move Johnny 15 feet to the left on this one, that, that, which was, you know, that was part of my pregame meeting. But, again, all of that stuff was wrapped up in I'm getting paid to win, not pitch. Wow. <laughs> One thing I want to follow up with that, Kurt, is with all the preparation and everything, how important was it for you uh, to have your catcher next to you when you were reviewing video? I, was, I, I, I went – my pregame meeting was my catcher and my pitching coach. Okay. We walked through every hitter, and I walked through every uh, – here's how I'm going to start him. Here's how I'm going to put them away. If we get in this count, I want to do this. If we get in this count, I want to do that. You know, if, if this guy comes up with runners in scoring position, here's the sequence we're going to start him with. Uh, all that. There was no ambiguity. If, 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 um, if, if uh, John Vanderwall comes up in the eighth inning to pinch hit, if there's runners on, here's how we're going to pitch him. If there is nobody on, here's how we're going to pitch him. You know, things like that. If, you know, if I would see a John Vanderwall, who was an extremely good pinch hitter, um, in the eighth inning of a ball game and we were winning six, nothing, I'm going to approach him differently than if it's two, nothing. Yeah. Because 
so I gave up a lot of home runs. A, a solo home run six nothing doesn't beat you. Now I'm not trying to give up a home run, right. but I'm going to give him a couple pitches that he likes because when he comes up in that two nothing game, I want him to look for those pitches still. Unbelievable. So you played with I mean when you were with Houston, it's funny you mentioned uh, with Biggio. Now he was a catcher when when you played. What yeah. was what was he like behind the plate? A second baseman. <laughs> no, he was he was he Craig Craig wasn't a big league catcher in the sense that he didn't he didn't have the 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 he was he was literally a center fielder second baseman. He was kind of like Dale Murphy in the sense that he had the speed and the the body to be somebody that didn't catch. You know, I always I I found out very early in my career that it was the opposite of what scouts thought. Smaller catchers were always more 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 durable than big catchers. Catching is hard. Catching is a nightmare on the body. And if you're if you're trying look look at like guys like Pudge Rodriguez, you know, he, he had I those were the perfect build catchers. Yeah, I had a guy like Mark Parent who's six six behind there. The umpire's gotta bust his ass to to see the strike zone. And I had umpires tell me this. You know, they love the the smaller guys, but Craig wasn't a he he wasn't a thrower. He, he I mean that and that was not his fault. You know, at St. John's, he was a college catcher who could rake. And, and you know, that didn't change. And the best thing that ever happened to him was him getting moved out from behind the plate because of that. And he kept his speed and he kept his tools and he, you know, turned himself into a Hall of Famer, which is no small feat. But um, he was – and I was young. I was a reliever then too. So there wasn't a lot of communication. I was fastball split and I was the closer. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot for him to do back there. So I want to go back into, we had discussed a little bit ago, <clears throat> well, and I asked you our question, the PFP drill, about what you don't, you're not a fan of in today's game. There's a lot of technology that has moved in. A um, mm. lot of pitching technology, obviously, first and foremost. Um, and then, obviously, we, we mentioned about the Astros and, and the technology that they used right. back in 2017. And I'm sure there were more teams that were doing it. They were the ones that oh, yeah. fought right. That's just like the, it's like the Patriots filming practice. <laughs> Come on, dude. Everybody's doing it and everybody's been doing it. Right. I guess first and foremost, let's start on the, the pitching technology stuff. Have you, have you gotten a sense of kind of what, what's being used there? And, and you were yeah. a sabermetric guy. Would that be something that you would say, okay, I'm a pitch, <clears throat> pitcher right now. I'm going to add one more to my pitch arsenal uh, by, by using this, by using the high-speed cameras and the technology yeah. like that. I'll tell you what I love about it. Um, I, I think – unlike most sports is, is it's very hard to, to push something that isn't true for very long. I buy the spin rate stuff. Totally buy into that. Like, you know, I, I had no idea how that worked, but I've, as I've listened to it and seen it come along, you know, it makes total sense. You know, and that's why I always think one of the most underrated aspects of drafting pitchers is hand size. If you draft a college pitcher with small hands, his breaking balls is breaking ball. Sorry. That's all you're getting. You, know, you draft a kid with big hands, you can change, help him manipulate the baseball differently as he gets older. But I buy spin rate. Um, and I, I don't – I guess one of the things that I worry about spin rate is I'm not really sure how you get somebody to get more spin rate mm -hmm. on a curveball, right? Unless you make them pull it down harder. or And to me, that screams elbow. Right. You know, I, I don't I, I don't know what John Smoltz's spin rate was on a slider. I just know that, you know, there's a saying that the old school pitching coaches like to use. And I totally believe it. You know, when they ask you how hard you're throwing pods would always say the hitters will tell you how hard you're throwing. 
<laughs> and you know, I, 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 as hitting in the national league for, for 10 years, the one thing I learned was, well, my first big league at bat, I singled up the middle off Rob Dibble. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and Charlie, the Brant made me look like a five-year-old child. <laughs> I mean, and, and I always wanted to learn the changeup, could never learn it, but, but guys that change speeds absolutely destroyed me. And, you know, that was one of the advantages of hitting in the National League. It's like, you know, I saw Kevin Brown. So the two pitches I remember in my life, I'll never forget, was I pitched against Kevin Brown. We pitched the game. It was an hour and 45 minutes. And oh, it, wow. we, we, we both threw complete games and we won one nothing. And he threw me a 96-mile-an-hour sinker that I heard go by. Like, <laughs> I, 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 and I was thinking to myself, nobody alive – net before or after could ever hit that i don't know how anybody ever never and the other one was in game seven clemens threw me a 93 mile hour split that i was like okay that's that's unfair that that's that's he's he's 52 years old and he's throwing a 93 mile an hour split that's bullshit <laughs> well it's like you said too with the fingers i mean you can yeah really have thrown your split if you yep. don't have big enough hands it's not yep. best inside there so. yep but i yeah i i like that spin rate i love um you know, a lot of the bigger statistics like war and fielding independent pitching, you know, those are nice at the end of the year to judge, but they don't, that, those aren't things that can help me during the season. You know, something I never paid attention to that I, I, I would probably be looking at a little bit, not that there's a lot you can do, but like batting average on balls in play. You'll see a guy go through a season and he'll have a 2-2 ERA when everybody else is 3-5. Their batting average on balls in play will be 295, 302. His will be like one six, you know, and that that accounts for that, I guess, in a sense, luck that people talk about when you when you're a guy. And that's why everybody they want everybody throwing 95 because the only sure out is a strikeout. Right. The second you put the ball in play, you put randomness into it, and then GMs don't like randomness. And so, you know, the unfortunate part is Colorado has to have a staff full of sinker ballers because of where they play. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, 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 you have to, excuse me. I think you build your team around your staff, right. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't build your team around a staff that doesn't exist. If you've got a bunch of contact guys, you better have a good defense and you better have three rabbits in the outfield. Yeah. You know, if you have, you know, if, if, if you're running a Randy Johnson out there or Pedro Martinez, you know, you can play your Brian Daubach in right field if you need to that day, just because there's going to be a lot less contact. So, again, you know, I don't mean to harp on this, the situation and stuff that took place, but it's obviously a part of baseball history now with the Houston Astros and, right. and everything. But I just curious your opinion. I mean, you're a syndicated type person that just you tell it like it is. And again, just, I, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on the whole well, situation. Go back and watch the game in Houston where they came back on Clayton Kershaw three times yeah. and tell me that that wasn't literally cheating. Now, listen, I have no problem stealing signs from second. I have, you know, none of that stuff, but that, that is, I think in my opinion, that's fixing a game. <laughs> it really is. And it's you know, only level. it's, 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 it's an unprecedented level, although it is an unprecedented, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But, like, I, I couldn't have got them out. There's no way. Like I said, if you, could, if you could pick me apart and tell me when my fastball is coming and when my change, you just had to guess the right side. So you go from having to nail four or five guesses to just having to nail one. Yeah. That, and that's – I mean, that's – and here's the thing. There isn't a person involved that didn't know exactly what they were doing and that it was completely and unequivocally, without a doubt, cheating. 
<laughs> so you know any of them that say otherwise are full of shit and they're lying <laughs> you know and and i guess the um the lack of i don't know the lack of 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 uh what's the word i'm looking for they they weren't they didn't feel bad the lack of um oh, like you remorse, know what i'm talking about yeah remorse right the lack yeah. of remorse yeah. when they talked about it was kind of embarrassing yeah. Like, you know, everybody's like, oh, you're going to drill them all this. Would you drill them? No, I'm not going to drill them all. You, your job's to win the game. You know, yeah. that, you know it, but, but the fact of the matter is they cheated like nobody's ever cheated before. But if you listen, I, and it went so under the radar that it made me laugh. When Chicago built their last new ballpark, the White Sox, I was sitting in the ballpark. And I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I would always, that guy that I'd watch the pitcher and see if he was tipping and, and you know, looking around for stuff. And for some reason, the second night in Chicago, I noticed that on the scoreboard in center field, there was a light on the bottom left and the bottom right of the scoreboard. And they would alternate when they went on and when they went off. No way. And it was with the white, it was with only when we pitched. And I was like, huh. So after this happens, and I can't believe you guys didn't hear this. Like six months ago, eight months ago, Jack McDowell's like, yeah, dude, we were tip, we were telling pitches from the scoreboard 20 years ago. Like, I'm like, what? wait, wait, what? And well, first of all, then you must have really sucked because you never won anything. But like that, I, I was like, oh, that's the same thing. That's the same. And that's even better because it's in the hitter's vision and it's done at the, in real time. So before I get in the box, I'm pretty sure I know I'm getting a breaking ball. Like, I couldn't believe that. And nobody picked up on that. <laughs> well, hopefully our Crazy. show, with the little viewership that we do have, somebody will take it to the, the commissioner's office. And but, 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 and everybody is looking for an edge, right? I mean, right. it's, you know, you got the catcher who gives his signs too low or, 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 you know, those stupid things you pick up as a baseball player. None of this had to do with baseball. Yeah, yeah. That's the, I was, we, we as catchers, obviously, we, we try to help out every now and then and you know you, you notice some of uh some of the catchers would have the the pine tower at the yep. very bottom or on the steam of the ever. catching gear yeah did, i was, I was going to ask you what was the i mean was it was it the tower there i remember i remember i was in spring training with the yankees and um sitting in the bullpen spring training and um mike stanton would sit there the whole the, during the whole game if he knew he was pitching the sixth inning and he would literally just keep juggling a, a rosin bag and spraying tough skin and rosin. And so when I warm him up, he told me, he goes, first thing I want you to do is when you get the ball, throw it back to me as hard as you can. And, you know, I was young. I'm like, well, I, I got a pretty good arm. And he goes, it doesn't matter. He goes, you're going to want to throw it as hard as you can. Well, I didn't. And I, I three hopped him on the first pitch because the ball looked like it was dipped in honey and sat out in the sun. Yep. for about Yep. I mean, <clears throat> Stick him. But then you catch his breaking ball. And you would see that thing just literally, it was like a, a jugs machine yep. hovering above you and it just shot straight down. I mean, it was, it was yep. insane. But yeah, I mean, every, every, everybody always tried to do stuff like that. I, yeah. I don't think it was a big deal when, you know, people like, oh, you know, so-and-so got busted for, you know, having stuff under his hat or this. Well, I mean, I, I used raw, like, see, I was a four-seam fastball guy. So, like, I, I didn't want scuffed balls. I didn't want, you know, uh, uh, sticky. I, 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 you know, everybody asks the worst weather to pitch in. The worst weather to pitch in is dry. I don't care what the temperature is, dry weather. Because I wanted, I needed stickiness because I threw a four-seamer and I used the seams. 
but like on my split, I didn't want the ball to stick to my hand. So like I, and, and, you know, I learned, I played with Mike Scott for a year. And so the greatest scuffer ever and who taught everybody off that 1991 staff, how to scuff. <laughs> um, but like, I, I didn't want that stuff. So that wasn't something that I ever pursued until I later in my career, when I started the, the 97 was 89 to 91. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, if this ball moves a little bit more because it's scuffed, then so be it. But um, yeah, there was always those games, right? I mean, uh, the, the catchers, you, you know, you'd have pitchers say, if the ball hits in the dirt, throw it right back. Don't give anybody a chance to throw the ball out or, you know, things like that. And, and uh, it's the little games we play. But, but, you know, going back to it, those are the games within the game. None of that is – you're not cheating. Nobody's cheating. What they did was so far beyond the pale that uh, – I, I, you know, I honestly thought that they should have been disqualified from the postseason uh, the following year. Agreed. I thought, you know mm-hmm. – Agree with and, you. Yeah, and, and because – some of the guys that uh, uh, many of the guys on that LA team will never ever get back to the World Series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny we had uh, we had the Angels catcher Max Stasi on last week, and you know he was he was right there in the middle of it, and he yeah. you know, we didn't really bring it up a whole much. It'd be a little awkward, but he was just like he goes, look, he goes, I knew what was going on, but I w- I just got called up. He yeah. goes, so it wasn't going to affect me. I was hitting a buck thirty, you know, I I was just riding it out. You know, yeah. let the other guys do their thing, and I'm just being a cheerleader. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um, but you know, see, that's that's the difference between you and me. I would have asked them. I would have said, you know, Jesus, man, you guys <laughs> cheated. What the hell? No, but but the the the, the thing about it is, and, and you guys know this. I played with guys who don't tell me what's coming. If you even if you get it, don't tell me because they, you know, you make it, you get one wrong guess. And you're diving slider away, and he throws a fastball up and in, and you know you're drinking shakes for eight months. Yeah. You know it's 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 there, and then there are other guys who wanted every advantage they could get. So, you know, when you're when you're talking about what is it, uh, uh, 0.44 milliseconds uh, of reaction time, uh, I, people just don't understand. They have no concept that, you know, uh, everybody that you know, you guys know in your life, that played sports looks at what you did and said you know gosh i wish i hadn't given up on well no you probably made the right choice dude because (laughs) everybody that knows you and they never played with anybody even remotely as talented as you guys and and they can't understand the pace of the game Mm -hmm. and and that is in every you know you start you know it's one of the things how many times you see a guy go to triple a on rehab and come back and he's lost for a week because the game at the big league level is faster than anything anybody can ever imagine and that's the thing people don't get, you know, oh man, I wish I hadn't quit playing. I, I had so many people tell me that. And then my answer is always, no, dude, you, you, you made the right choice. You, you selling insurance was where you needed to go because you know, you're five foot seven and you weigh 214 pounds. So it wasn't just going to happen. <laughs> it, it is. It's a different, I mean, today's game, <clears throat> there's so much, I, I look back, you know, even like a, we'd be playing in double A AA or triple A and you would have maybe one or two guys that would be out of a bullpen that would be a mid-90 guy. Yep. You know, or you'd have one starter. And if that was the guy that was throwing that day, all you'd be like, okay, you know, I'm going to have to cheat a little bit, start a little early. But now, you know, everyone and their brothers throwing 95 to 100. It's, mm. it's, it's just such, I just, a, yeah. such a different I, game. I remember the two organizations I remember in the minor leagues were the Dodgers and the Blue Jays. Every pitcher on every staff at every level threw 95. Didn't matter how old they were, every single one 
They had, you know, and if they didn't throw 95, they had a Dave Steve slider. And it was like those two organizations, and they did. They always drafted power arms. And, they, you know, I guess they figured we got 45 in the minor leagues. Four or five of them are going to figure it out, you know. And so they were always a nightmare to play against. And they had they hit the Latin market so much better than everybody else did early on. Some of the greatest players I ever saw in the minor leagues, that, that like I played against a guy in St. Louis organization, Geronimo Pena, was yeah. the greatest athlete I've ever seen. And, like, he barely got a cup of coffee in the big leagues. And that was when I realized, you know, it's not all about talent. It, there is so much mental toughness needed to do this and be this. It's not hard to get there in, in the sense of being a big leaguer. And I, I say that, you know, what, I'm, what I mean by that. But it's 100,000 times harder to stay there. Well, with the, <clears throat> the whole – even when you're talking about intimidation. So when, when it was you and Randy Johnson – you know, as other teams coming in and having to face you guys back to back, like that's that's a thing. The guy oh. with Vanderwall telling you, "Hey, you know, these guys, you guys have seen more video than they have." How do you walk in there and say, "Jesus, we got to face Kurt," and then tomorrow we got to face Randy? My average is at this. I'm going to be dipping down to here. Like it's two funnest you know, years of my life. <laughs> what, what, Dude, it was. The, it was Ken so Wilson said fun. that there was so much intimidation. Randy used a lot of intimidation when he was with yep. the Mariners, obviously. What did you guys joke about that or just I mean, was it had to be like super fun to go out there and like, say, Yeah, no, we thought we were like badasses. Like yeah. we we I mean, dude, we were we were I think ninety and fifteen over two years. Like we lost back to back games once in, in seventy starts. Wow. Or no, hundred and forty starts. And and like <clears throat> I, I loved, loved pitching after him because he would do stuff that it was like, wow, like, okay. You know, it, it would be – we got to the point where I remember him one day. He went seven, gave up three, punched out eight, and, and gave up five hits. And the media was like, you know, are you hurt? And he, he was pissed. <laughs> like, you know, it's not fair. I said, dude, if you don't want those expectations, then just start sucking. Otherwise, you're stuck with it, man. And, and so – like I can, he pushed me in good, in great competitive ways. And, and there are things I did in Arizona and in my career, I never would have done without him uh, being a guy. And it wasn't, you know, he didn't talk. We were so incredibly different as pitchers from a physical perspective. You know, I mean, listen, Randy, I know you worked your ass off, but let's be very clear. I'm six, five, two twenty-five, And there have been 14 million of me in the world throwing right-handed you're 6'11 you throw 160 there's only been one of you ever so don't tell me you didn't get you know but he had to work his ass off to, to get those that body under control and when he did wow it was uh, but it was funny because so RJ and I golfed every day we didn't pitch for two years we golfed and we played for a golf shirt and at the end of two years I had 94 shirts and he had one <laughs> and and the, the, the amazing thing about it was <clears throat> he golfed exactly like he pitched. If he had a bad first hole, the round was over. If he went out there in the first inning and was struggling, I never saw he And it was very, very rarely that it happened. He was done. And it just blew me away that somebody that good could ever not think he's just going to dominate. And it's, it's hard, man. It's, but dude, that it was so fun. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, we start off both years. We start like he threw a, like, we both threw like back-to-back -back complete games to open the season in Dodger stadium. And then the next year 
in 02, I think we, we both, we, we shut down San Diego. Same. I mean, it was San Diego during that, you know, we played so many more interdivisional games and San Diego wasn't very good. And it was just, well, I started the only game in like a five-year stretch that I went less than five innings in was the game that the lights blew out in San Diego. It was a dust game. Yeah. I went the first two innings. Well, I'm pitching. So they had a left-handed lineup. We pick it up the next day. RJ comes in to relieve me. And there's like seven lefties in the lineup. And he punches out 16 in eight innings of relief. And it's like, it was just fun. It was fun. It was when you're standing out on the mound and you're going to throw a fastball and the hitter knows it and everybody in the stadium knows it. And you know, there's nothing the hitter can do about it. It's fun. Like it's, it's <laughs> like, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. You know, I am. And it's a feeling, a mentality, but you know what? I'm just so much better than you guys today that, you know, I, I can remember, and this is how stupid I was, but I can remember walking to the bullpen going, Hey guys, take the day off. <laughs> and I'd, I'd throw a complete game and they'd come into the club. I was like, what? How? And I, I just had Bob Welch was an amazingly good pitching coach and I had an enormous amount of confidence and, and, you know, like I said, I was prepared. And so when you put, I was throwing the ball in upper nineties pretty consistently. When you put that with a pretty good split and a game plan, uh, you have a lot of avenues to, to, to have success. So by all your preparation, was that, was that almost taking the adrenaline factor almost out of it? It's, you know, you get on the mound and you got to get a big game today. No, you know what it was? Instead of just going, I got it taken care of. No, it was, it was allowing for the adrenaline to help in a sense. Like adrenaline never made me forget my train of thought. I, I was so ironclad locked in on my game plan that nothing could happen during the game where I'd be like, Oh my God, what am I supposed to throw here? And so it became a situation where, and somebody just asked me this on Twitter the other day, you know, how would you, would you pitch differently with an empty stadium? Absolutely. Because I can tell you, I punched out, I think 3,116 guys. And I would tell you half of those I punched out because the crowd was on their feet and I had a, a good extra three or four miles an hour in the tank to come and get them. And the same way being on the road without the, every great experience I ever had in baseball includes fans. And if without the fans, those experiences wouldn't be different than any other one. Getting the fans out of it, you know, getting, having 50,000 people screaming their heads off to yeah. root against you, you know, it's got to just, you know, fuel the fire. Well, it's, it's, but, it gives you a huge advantage as a pitcher in the sense that, and I always used to feed on this, like, the fans would get the adrenaline going and they would get everything stirred up. And you, there were umpires who would feed off of that. There were umpires who couldn't wait. Go watch the first uh, strikeout of game set. Jeter leading off the game. Steve Ripley couldn't wait to call strike. That pitch was six inches off the plate. And he called strike three and the place just went nuts. And it was like, I, I used those guys. I knew who those guys were. You know, and then you had Joe West who hated the Red Sox. You know, and, and you had to kind of work the other way around. But but the fans could and, – and they made hitters, right? I mean, you have runners in scoring position in the road, and the fans are all fired up and standing up. I would use that against the hitter. And it was another Maddox thing. Like, when everybody else dialed it up, he'd dial it back. And so, you know, that guy's sitting there with the 2-2 count and the runner on third in the seventh inning of a one-run game, and the fans are on their feet going crazy, and it's late September, and it's a postseason, you know, meaningful – potential meaningful game – you know, the, the best pitch in the world there is a split because this guy's all geared up to hit 97. The fans are getting him going. And you had to know what hitters that affected and what hitters it didn't. Tony Gwynn was the same 
didn't matter what the count was, score, game, anything. You know, there are other guys who were completely different hitters when the fans were up and on it. If you know, if you knew the umpire, certain guys who are going to give a little bit more. Today, when you flip the TV on, you see the stupid little strike. They call it a strike box right. now right, right. instead of a strike zone, which I never understood that right. terminology. So with all the different stances that you see with the catchers today and with the strike box and everyone's trying to, you know, manipulate, get their you know, finish the pitch from out of the zone into the zone. Would that have driven you a little bit nuts? I mean, you, you said you wanted just it was just, hey, just me and the me and the target. Right. So well, if, if you have a guy yeah. set up there, what would you do with a guy like, say, Tyler Flowers, who's jumping around like a Mexican jumping bean, you know, in the middle of your windup? Yeah, well, so a co- couple things. Questec started to come in uh, in in the early 2000s and changed a lot of a lot of things for umpires. I mean, Angel Hernandez went from a guy who had a very awkward strike zone to a guy who, if your curveball was at the letters when it got there before the catcher, he was calling it a strike. He would tell you before the game, "I'm going to call high strikes. I'm not going to call low strikes." And and it was kind of absurd in in the high strikes that he called, but hey, I want to use it if he's going to call it. But Questec, the first thing that people needed to understand about Questec was the grading scale on Questec, which is the, the automated system that they used to call, it didn't judge an umpire on the four inches at the corner. Two on and two off and two on and two, two off on each corner. Those weren't, pitches weren't judgeable. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's where I live. Like, if you can't consistently call that pitch, I got a problem. And I... I, I ended up paying $25,000 fine for destroying a camera in Arizona as after my at bat, because when I was at the plate, I said something to, um, I can't remember his name, an umpire. And I said, you know, the pitch last inning or whatever, this pitch, the pitch, that pitch at the end of the inning, that's, that's gotta be a strike. And he looked at me and said, the machine won't let me call that a strike. Wow. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll fix that. And I went over and I took a bat to the machine in the on-deck circle and destroyed it. And all four umpires came up to me and said, that was the greatest thing we've ever seen. <laughs> well, wow. eventually, uh, we'll have to bring you back in so you can go up to the booth and do that, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, so are, are, there any, are there any catchers today that you see, you know, that, that you think, hey, you know, I mean, you, you threw to a lot of, you threw a, to a ton of different, different right. guys, you know. Um, Take a guy like Dutch, you know, who was a just a just a huge leader guy in the clubhouse. Right. You That's know, my and, sorry. and he was there in, you know, you'd see him in the all-star games. And I used I used to watch him on TV growing up in that. A guy like that, you know, what were his biggest attributes behind the plate? Like how did he take control? His presence. Of the game? He yeah. had a presence, man. Dutch was one of those guys who would take care of the umpire for me. Like, you know, he made it clear, don't you don't need to say anything. I'm, I'll handle all of it. And, and I never, I've never been around a person that was a better leader of men than Dutch. And, and I'll, I, he just knew what to say and when to say it and how to say it. And all of those things are integral to, to being a leader. And it was just, I, and I, I, I didn't realize it till after, till probably five or 10 years later, just because you had to see how everybody else did it and no one ever did it like he did it. And, you know, from as far as behind the plate, Dutch was very quiet as a catcher physically. Like he did, there was not a lot of movement. I never minded catchers doing things as because I never looked, I didn't, when I came up over my head, my head went down. I never saw the plate until I turned to go to the plate. So as long as he was set where he needed to be, when I turned to the plate, I was good. 
And so, you know, I didn't care what you were doing. And tech, the good ones would always do little stuff back there, you know, whether it be grab a little dirt and throw it on the shoe of the hitter to make them think you're on the inside corner of the plate or, you know, you know, just do thing, make sounds and whatnot. And, and, you know, I, I, like, of course I loved guys like that. Like Gary Bennett was, I loved throwing to Gary just because Gary was a young player and I knew how much he wanted me to like the job he did. And so I always liked young guys like that. That's my Rottweiler Jax, by the way. Hey, Jax, nice. Jax, stop. <laughs> I'm going to shock you. <laughs> so when so, you, no. you take a young guy, take, take Gary, for instance. So Gary's up and down, you know, with a few years with the Phillies. And so when he's catching, being a young guy and having to go to the mound after, say, a walk or two, and a lot of guys have said, hey, when they go out to the mound, if they're, if they're going to talk to a veteran, some guys almost dreaded it. Just like, Jesus, you know, <laughs> hey, it's not me. It's they're making me come out here for whatever reason. Just yep. bear with me for 30 seconds. Do you have any, any memorable moments with, like, a younger catcher that tried to come out to the mound you might have screwed with a little bit? You know what? No, because, because – I didn't dick around on the field. Like everything was deadly serious for, with a young, first of all, a young catcher that came to the mound only came to the mound. Cause I called him out. Like if you're a young catcher and you're catching me, keep your ass back there. Unless I would need you. If I need you, I'll, I'll you know, <clears throat> and I, that, again, that was a tempo thing or I might do, <clears throat> I might do that late in a game to, to get in the hitter's head a little bit. Um, or, if a pinch hitter comes off the bench and, and I want to make sure he knows what our game plan is or whatever, but I, I worked at the top of, of, of a lot of the rotations that I pitched in. So I knew that young catchers in their mind, they were auditioning for a job when they caught me, because if I went in and said, Hey dude, he's phenomenal. I want him every time out that kid had a job. Right. And so I, I never manipulate that, but I always use that to my advantage. And, and, you know, guys like him and Bobby Estalea and, and young catchers that I had all throughout my big league career. Uh, well, it's like when I had Chad Moeller in Arizona, Chad was, uh, came up, I think in, uh, Oh two. Um, and Damien was mostly the catcher, but Chad wanted to catch every day. And so I knew he would work his ass off to be as good a defensive catcher as he could be. And excuse me, and so I love those guys, but I, I, I was always trying to make my catcher better than he might be that day and feel, and I always want him to feel good about himself. You know, I would tell all my young catchers, you know, Hey, listen, uh, Dale Ford's behind the plate today. Nothing. I don't want you, don't even say boo. And when you're at the plate, just say yes, sir. No, sir. And, and don't, I'll take care of this because if you say something, you're going over four and my strike zone is going to be 12 inches wide. So just shut the fuck up. <laughs> how did you, how'd you like Estalea? Bobby, Bobby Tyler, Bobby yeah. was a his nickname was Chestalea. Obviously yeah. Bobby looked like a, a WWF wrestler. Yeah. He had the, I mean, his, his chest was so big that he'd have to undo like four buttons. Well, the, him being the, named the, in the, uh, in the report was a surprise to absolutely no one. <laughs> <laughs> I like Bobby. I, Bobby was a nice yeah. kid and, and he, he, he meant well. Um, but I think the image was such a big thing for him, uh, that I think it screwed him a little bit. You know, I, he had tools he could throw, um, he caught me a couple of times and he was good at it. And, and, uh, you know, but it's, 
you know, I, I listen, I got to go, but I'm going to tell you one last story and it involves Bobby Estalea. So we were in Chicago and uh, the Cubs and the rookie uh, prank at that time was there was a statue, a civil war statue about a mile from the stadium of a general on a horse. And so the rookie indoctrination was that the rookies had to go the night before the first game and paint the balls of the horse Philly blue or Philly red. And so we're going to the park the next day and we drive by and sure enough, it's just bright red painted. They did a phenomenal job. So we get to the ballpark and this was all set up. And so three guys that were Chicago detectives would come into the locker room. And the first guy would flip out his badge and talk to Tito like, you know, we've, we've got a problem here. I need to speak to your players. And Tito be, and Tito was in on it. He'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, it, and he'd start off like, guys, um, for years we've allowed Major League Baseball to kind of around with us. But about a year ago, the mayor put a couple laws in place, and, and that shit stopped. Now, uh, last night, uh, apparently some of you guys thought it would be funny to go down and deface government property. Well, unbeknownst to you, we had cameras at the park. So can I see Bobby Estalea, Michael Mims, and he late named like the four rookies. And three of them, one of them like literally started crying. Like it was, and so, and it's impossible not to laugh. So he calls him up and Bobby's gonna be a tough guy. Like he's smirking and the guy looks at him and goes, you fucking funny? You think that shit's funny? Turn around puts him up against the wall and Bobby's kind of, he goes, yeah, you'll, your ass will be chuckling just a second. He cuffs him. And like Bobby's face goes from funny ha to, oh shit, this actually might be real. <laughs> and they walk them out of the clubhouse and these guys are head down. And, and I'm like, Hey, listen, dude, we'll come, we'll, we'll, we'll get together. We'll get your bail money guys. We'll, we'll, you know, after the game, just, just hang tight. And they walk out of the locker room and they stand outside the locker room. We open the door and just start laughing. And they're all like, oh, my God. Every <laughs> year awesome. it was better than the next. <laughs> and Jesse was the only guy I ever saw who was, like, trying to bow up and, like, be, yeah, you're whatever, dude. And he, it, they broke him down. It was awesome. So That is, that is great. Well, Kurt, we, we really appreciate you yeah. coming no, this on. Was fun. This, was a, this was a blast. We, uh, and that's what we do it. We do it to, uh, you know, just kind of give a – just talk baseball you know the yep. people that listen are always always asking you know hey who are you coming who are you getting on next and, yeah. and when we said we're going to get a pitcher on we wanted to kind of you know go big or go home so we're we're just thrilled to death that you're able I to take time it. out no, of your busy great, schedule so yep it's funny too snooze because i i will never forget you because you're the only player I ever saw with a jersey that had an s and a z next to it that's why i, I remember it forever like you know I was trying to figure out what nationality that was. I was like, is this dude Polish or Hungarian? I, well, I, I am Polish. I, I would always yeah. told the guys when I was older, if I put a little squiggly above my U in my name, then I probably would have, you know, said that I was 17 and, and got another few years. Of yep, playing, so. absolutely. But that's awesome. <laughs> I do. And I told Tyler before, the funny thing was when I, the day that I caught you, you know, I remembered it specifically because after the, after the day I blocked every single ball, came up, shook my hand, said, good luck. But you, slipped me a bill and i was like this is great you know so i i bought dinner for my roommates at good home awesome that was awesome <laughs> that's awesome never man. forget it i appreciate so it. i do appreciate it thank you all hey right, it was Kurt. nice to meet you tyler nice to meet you thank you, guys, you so take much care. all right you guys too. Stay safe. later take care Kurt. you too well that's a wrap on any number two of game number three please stay tuned with us everybody we are enjoying what we're doing here if you have questions comments or 
anything that you would like to share with us, please do not hesitate to reach out to Chris or myself. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at GoodRowCatching, or you can follow Chris at Under2Catching. Or you can shoot us a DM through our Twitter account or through Instagram at TheMound underscore Visit. We always want to give a shout out to our loyal partners over at All Star Sports. Continue supporting them. They are doing some great things when it comes to the catching position. And always remember to our loyal listeners, please stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll catch you real soon. Yeah.